This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. America is engaged in a public debate about the best ways to address the poison of bigotry, hatred that can target another's race, sex, or religion. But one group, Jews in America, a group seeing an alarming rise in the incidence of anti-Semitism, seem to escape our broader public attention and concern. According to FBI data, despite representing just 2% of the US population, Jews are the victims in more than 60% of religion-based hate crimes. Just last week, in Brighton, a neighborhood of Boston, a rabbi was stabbed in broad daylight by an avowed anti-Semite for merely wearing a kippah or skullcap. Troubling events like this are made more serious when considering anti-Jewish vitriol and acts can be attributed to groups occupying both ends of the political continuum and in rural and urban communities across the country. Why has our pluralistic society been unable to come to terms with the scourge of anti-Semitism? And how does our current political acrimony help both foment and obscure these hateful acts in our midst. My guest today is Jeff Jacoby, opinion writer for the Boston Globe. Jeff has written passionately about his and his family's experience with anti-Semitism. His most recent Globe column entitled, How to Speak Out Against Anti-Semitism, sounds the alarm that though American society has offered a safe haven for Jews for three centuries, a troubling upward trend in anti-Semitism has reached levels not seen since the end of World War II. Jeff will share with us the data supporting his concerns, identify the main sources that serve to aid and abet this trend, and guide listeners in ways we can understand and address this bigotry in our community. When I return, I'll be joined by Boston Globe writer Jeff Jacoby. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by Boston Globe opinion writer Jeff Jacoby. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Jeff. Joe, it's good to talk to you again. I think this is my third appearance yeah, uh, with you. That's right. You get the gold jacket at five. We know Three that's the charm. So I feel like a regular. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Now, Jeff, you and I uh, share a common concern uh, uh, about bigotry in our society, whether it be directed at uh, a particular race or religion or sex. Uh, but those uh, topics seem to be well covered in our media landscape these days. I want to address something I think is overlooked with you as the uh, uh, exception, the lone voice. Uh, we're not hearing much about the uptick in the rise of uh, anti-Semitic acts and, and rhetoric. So I want to start first with your own personal experience uh, with anti-Semitism. And perhaps you could share something about your family's experience with anti-Semitism uh, as you see it. Sure. Well, it's a big subject and a somber subject. On To begin at the most personal level, I'm Jewish. I was raised in an observant Jewish household. My father was a Holocaust survivor, a survivor of Auschwitz, the only member of his family who came out of the death camps alive. My father passed away just a few months ago, and over the course of his lifetime, he went from seeing a world in which anti-Semitism was normal, it was uh, typical, it was what he grew up with in Europe, to going through the worst and most destructive and most lethal manifestation of, of anti-Semitism in history, uh, to seeing something of a taboo against at least overt Jew hatred and anti-Semitism uh, take hold after World War II and after the, the enormity of the Holocaust became more widely understood, to late in his life, seeing the revival 
of anti-Semitism. And I don't think there's any question that over the past uh, 15 or 20 years, you know, the, the, ro- the rocks have been rolled back and the snakes of anti-Semitism have slithered out from underneath them. You know, it, it never led up in the Middle East, in the Arab world and the Muslim world. Uh, but over the last 10, 15 years, it's become uh, endemic in Europe. And now in recent years, we're seeing it more and more in the United States. So my father, just in the course of his lifetime, uh, traversed a kind of arc from anti-Semitism to a suppression of it to the revival of anti-Semitism. And here I am, you know, I'm now approaching middle age or maybe already in middle age uh, and reflecting on what it has been like to have grown up in an era in the United States when it seemed as though, again, overt anti-Semitism, explicit anti-Semitism was a thing of the past uh, to having to face the fact that it's not at all a thing of the past. It's never gone away. And it is now, you know, rearing its ugly head, you know, almost, almost anywhere you look, you can see examples of it. So to me, this is obviously something that hits home just on a personal level, but it's also something that hits home on a sort of family historical level. And I'm the father of two sons, and I have to now think all the time about how this will affect them. So to me, it's a, it's a, you know, it's obviously a serious and and a vivid issue. But I also, you know, would would comment as somebody who's in the opinion business and somebody who writes for a newspaper and somebody who lives and works in the secular world. Uh, I have long understood, and I am trying to make understood through my writing, that anti-Semitism is not just a problem for Jews. That when any society uh, becomes infected with it, it's a sign that that society itself is fundamentally sick or diseased or or dysfunctional in some way. And one of the one of the terrible truisms of history is that anti-Semites only begin with the Jews; uh, rarely do they end with them. You know, the ultimate classic example is Hitler and the Nazi party in Germany in the 1930s when the Jews were the first target. And it was, you know, as I wrote in a column, it was, you know, Hitler began by by incinerating or by burning the Jews, but by the end, uh, all of Europe was in flames. We saw it more recently uh, with uh, Islamists and the, and the, the radical Islamic terror. Uh, for a long time, one of their chief targets was Jews, especially Jews in Israel. Um, on 9-11, you know, the whole world was reminded that Islamist terror is not limited just to Jews. Thousands of Americans lost their lives. And, you know, we, we in, the, in the 20 years since then, we've you know, fought wars to try to suppress it, uh, seeing the, the ravages of everything from Al-Qaeda to ISIS. So anti-Semitism is a, is a problem for society as a whole, as well as being a problem just for Jews. So uh, that's a, a powerful way to start the show. I, th- I think in in your characterization of anti-Semitism, you really said that it, it's always with us. It just seems that at some certain times we're able to suppress it uh, and keep it from uh, the public eye, but it's always under an undercurrent. Uh, is that how you c- could characterize it? And and now you've said the long arc from the end of World War II till present day. What forms has it taken when when someone is employing anti-Semitic Rhetoric. Where where do we? What does it look like? So here, I think we should take a take the long historical view and go back far beyond, you know, much much earlier than just World War II. Anti-Semitism has often been called the oldest hatred. Uh, one of the one of the greatest books of research and, and history of anti-Semitism it has exactly that title, the oldest hatred. You know, it goes back literally to biblical times. You know, you open up the Book of Exodus and you read the words of Pharaoh saying that the the the, the, the tiny Jewish uh, tribes living within the land of Egypt are a threat to the security of the state and therefore must be exterminated. 
you open up the book of Esther and you see, uh, you know, the, the powerful vizier of the, of the, of the emperor, uh, insisting that there's this tiny little population that has its own set of laws and its own religion, and it doesn't worship the king's gods, and therefore, uh, you know, the people must be wiped out. So literally, from biblical time, uh, anti-Semitism, and, and for people who aren't clear, I don't know if there's anybody listening to us that this applies to, but the word anti-Semitism is simply a synonym for Jew hatred. It, it was a term that was coined almost as a euphemism, but that's literally what it means, simply means the hatred of Jews Jewish institutions, Jewish values, Jewish religion. Since antiquity, anti-Semitism has always existed, but it, it its shape changes over time. And there have been eras in history when anti-Semitism expressed itself primarily as a hatred of the Jewish religion, a hatred of the Jews for not accepting the idols and the, uh, you know, the, 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 um, pantheon of gods that the pagans were worshiping and assisting only on one single invisible universal god. That was a cause of anti-Semitism. When Christianity came along, anti-Semitism took the form of Jews being accused of uh, deicide, having been Christ killers. And for centuries in Europe, that was a major engine and a major fuel of hatred of the Jews. You open up uh, the writings of Martin Luther, you know, the great Luther, the, the, you know, one of the, the, the founders of, of Protestantism, and you read his essay uh, on the Jews and their lies, which he wrote, I forget the exact date, of the 1500s, in which he explicitly calls for the most ruthless, murderous, lethal persecution of the Jews, you know, up to and including putting them in their synagogues and burning the buildings down, uh, for, for just ferocious, religious-based uh, hatred. In other eras, anti-Semitism has taken the form of a, of a racial attack. You know, the Nazis famously described the Aryans as the supreme highest race and the Jews as the lowest race and the race that defiles uh, Aryan purity. And anti-Semitism took the form of, of a scientific racist kind of hatred. In this country, early in the, in the 20th century and late in the, in the 19th century, the movement to, to the eugenics movement. To, to suppress what was thought of by some of the leading scientists of the time as the lowly races, the, the, you know, the, the most degraded races, the races that could never properly assimilate, the ones that would always lead to criminality, included not only blacks and uh, Italians and Slavs, but very much explicitly included Jews as well. The, the, the anti-immigration laws that were passed in this country in the, in the early 1920s effectively slammed the door shut on almost all immigration from Eastern Europe, which meant, of course, that when the Nazis came to power, you know, a decade or so later, the United States was not was not an option for a safe haven. In modern times, there are a lot of examples that, that we could do of this, of the way in which anti-Semitism has taken on, you know, a, the particular form unique to the haters' own mindset. But I would say in modern times, especially, the dominant form of anti-Semitism is hatred of the Jewish state. So it's not so much that anti-Semites today attack Jews for their religion or attack Jews because they're the wrong race. Now the attack is focused on the nation state of the Jews. And that's why of the 200 plus countries in the world, the one that is most relentlessly and ruthlessly and, and unstoppably uh, attacked and defamed with the most uh, 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 vicious kinds of indictment is the the little democrat the little Jewish democracy in the Middle East. You know, on a on the on the surface, it seems crazy that little Israel 
should be the the object of more hostility in the United Nations, on college campuses, uh, you know, on, in, in the precincts of the far left and the far right than any other country. But it's explained by the fact that that today is the primary form that anti-Semitism takes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but it, it it never ends. It just constantly changes and adapts. And I wrote in my recent column in The Globe on the subject that it's like a virus. It remains so lethal because it's constantly mutating, and it has done so for 3,000 years. Let's uh, uh, address the um, uh, question with Israel. Um, there's a lot of criticism in the in the public eye recently with the unrest in Gaza. Uh, rockets fired uh, from both sides. Um, we won't get into debate who's who's right and who's wrong. Uh, it does seem that um, uh, some people attribute uh, hostility towards uh, Jews in America uh, and associate it with their un uneasiness with uh, the policies of the Jewish state. Do you see them, is that just a pretext for uh, uh, hatred or uh, can someone be deeply critical of Israel and not be an anti-Semite? Of course, somebody can be deeply critical of Israel, just like somebody can be deeply, be deeply critical of the United States government and not be an America hater. Somebody can be deeply critical of uh, you know, Irish government policy and not be bigoted against the Irish. A good way to tell the difference is with what the person, is how the person expresses his criticism. Anybody who said, listen, I'm not, I'm not prejudiced against uh, the Irish. I have no anti-Irish bigotry. Um, Joe, you're Italian. Let's switch to Italy. <laughs> I, I, I'm not bigoted against the Italians. I have no anti-Italian bigotry. Great soccer but, players. But I believe that Italy, you know, really does not, does not have a right to exist. Uh, the creation of Italy, uh, you know, it was, was replete with all kinds of terrible crimes. And, you know, and I can, and I can list them all for you. Um, and while Italian people themselves are perfectly fine and I have no problem, uh, you know, socializing with them, um, there should not be a, such a country as Italy. Anybody who said that would not be believed. You, you, it would be a clear, you know, a, a clear acknowledgement that what we're really talking about is anti-Italian bigotry. During the fighting in Gaza recently, and we're, we're not going to have a whole conversation about, you know, what you know, the rights and wrongs and so forth, but during that fighting and in the immediate aftermath, there were attacks that were taking place against Jews, Jews being beaten and attacked in the streets of America from New York to California by people who were you know, driving up and down streets, wearing flying Palestinian flags and waving, uh, uh, wearing kafias, you know, the, the, the Palestinian uh, uh, scarves seeking out Jews. For example, in, in, in Los Angeles, I remember there was one episode where they went to a, I think it was a sushi restaurant, restaurant yes, a sushi and restaurant. started beating up the diners in the streets. When you have Jews being beaten up in the street while they eat dinner in America by people who claim uh, that they're only against Israel, it, I mean, it, it could hardly be more explicitly clear that anti-Zionism by and large is just another form of anti-Semitism. You don't see anyone saying, you know, I, I'm I'm against the policies of the Cuban government. I'm certainly against the policies of the Cuban government. Therefore, I'm going to go around beating up Cubans in America. And the idea that you can somehow separate hatred of Israel, insistence that Israel is the worst of all countries in the world, that it's guilty of the worst imaginable sins in international law, that it doesn't deserve to exist, that its very existence is a crime and an offense against humanity. The idea that somebody can believe all of that and try to prove their point by beating up Jews in the streets and yet somehow not be guilty of anti-Semitism, that doesn't pass the smell test. It seems like a fairly bright, bright line between uh, 
those who would criticize the policies of Israel and those who would criticize the existence of Israel. Israel, I don't know if you've ever been to Israel or yes, if you ever read the Israeli press. It, yes. As you know, Israel is an extremely robust democracy. The politics in Israel are, uh, they could hardly be more contentious. Criticism of Israel and its politicians and its policies is, you know, that that's the the, the bread and butter of of Israeli political discourse. Turn on any Israeli TV station or you know or radio station or open up a newspaper, and you'll see the most uh, vigorous criticism of the Israeli government by Israelis themselves. Obviously, you can you can criticize any government, any any nation's policies without hating its people. But let me point out, this is the only country that this point has to be said about. And it's said over and over and over again. If I had a nickel for every time that I have had to say or have, or have heard others say, of course you can be critical of Israel without being an anti-Semite, I, I would have enough nickels to retire. Nobody ever feels the need to say that about any other country because there's no other country in which criticism is really just another form of bigotry. It's only when it comes to Israel, to the Jewish state, that, that this point seems to be need you know it seems to have to be made uh, again and again and again and it's just it's just one more indication of the fact that the dominant form of anti-semitism in, in America today in the west today it, it, that it manifests itself primarily as hostility to the Jewish state a thought uh, a thought experiment i don't know if you've considered uh, uh very recently uh, kind of got drowned out about the abraham accords where we saw U the uae and bahrain uh recognize or normalize uh, diplomatic relations with israel recognize israel uh they joined two other states and and it's been whispered that perhaps other arab states will join these uh, these accords um were there to be suddenly peace to break out in the middle east um do you think that would take away um this card that uh, is used by uh, anti-Semites. Uh, if there's peace in the Middle East, uh, they'd have to go somewhere else for their uh, their pretext for. Um, I doubt it. I doubt it. It would it would just shift into a slightly different shape. But as long as there's a Jewish state, it will be a it will be a target or an object of anti-Semitism. I remember uh, back. I remember back after the. Um, the uh, the Oslo Accords in 1993. Remember the famous scene of, of uh, Bill Clinton hosting Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin on the White House lawn, and they signed the accord by which the PLO, you know, supposedly claimed that it would end terrorism and and recognize the legitimacy of Israel, and Israel agreed to the creation of a Palestinian Authority. Uh, and you remember some years after that, in 2005, the withdrawal of Israel from the Gaza Strip. The Israelis called it disengagement. There were not there were twenty one or twenty two Israeli settlements in the Gaza Strip. All of them were dismantled, evacuated. Every Jew, every Jewish soldier, every stick of of you know Jewish construction was removed from the Gaza Strip, and the whole thing was turned over um, to the Palestinians. On both of those two occasions, ninety three and again in two thousand five, the argument was made over and over again that this will finally. Uh, get Israel on good terms with the world, and this will finally put an end to the, you know, to the, to the relentless focus on Israel with with such hostility. Um, it didn't happen on either of those occasions, and and I don't think even if another you know twenty Arab countries uh, joined the Arab Accords, um, even if Israel withdrew from every square inch of Israel except for maybe the suburbs of Tel Aviv, you would still find people who would insist that Israel is a criminal state and it hasn't done enough and the demonization will continue. Well, let's change our focus to our own country and, and in fact, very, very locally. Just last week, 
Uh, a rabbi in Brookline was brutally assaulted, stabbed, uh, fortunately survived. Um, and the, the perpetrator was known to be an anti-Semite. Uh, I think the account was by his roommates or associates. Um, when we look at uh, uh, the mind, you can't look into the mind of a criminal, but um, what do you know about attackers of this sort? You, you mentioned those who would attack someone in a sushi restaurant in L.A. Is this sort of the nature of things? Did he? Did he where does what animates a, a, a hateful act like this, like our, our, against a, a local rabbi? So you're talking about Rabbi Shlomo Naginsky. He was stabbed outside the uh, the Shelo House, which is an Orthodox Jewish day school and synagogue in Brighton. Not it wasn't Brookline; it was Brighton, in a neighborhood oh. of Boston. The attacker. A guy named uh, Ahmed Awad is uh, Egyptian. It turns out that he was here um, and had overstayed his visa, so he was in the country illegally. But there have been so many of these attacks. Put put this put one one mention on on the side that we don't yet know a whole lot about him. And let's talk in a moment about why that is and what that might signify. But but if you are uh, in, uh, a Muslim, especially if you're a rad- if you've been radicalized. And you hear this constant drumbeat. You're you're raised to to understand that Jews are evil and that they're your enemy. And you you see these constant attacks all the time. Uh, and and or perhaps again, we don't know that this is the case with him. But perhaps you've been raised to believe um, that attacking Jews will win you a place in heaven, and that this is how you're going to be a martyr. Uh, there's been so much of that in recent years. It's not that surprising that you have examples where some where these so-called lone wolf attacks will take place. But all, all the less, it's that much less surprising when, as we were just talking about, you see Jews being attacked in the streets in, you know, in, in, in from, from one end of the country to the other just a few weeks ago. You see synagogues, you know, that have been vandalized. Uh, the, the Holocaust Memorial in downtown Boston has been vandalized twice in, in, in just the past, uh, past year or so. Um, uh, Chabad houses, which are, you know, Hasidic Orthodox Jewish uh, like welcome centers, community centers around around the country, and a bunch of them in, in in the greater Boston area have been vandalized. One was set on fire twice by attackers. So at this point, not only is this not surprising, it, it's almost becoming normal. So go back to this point about why don't we know more about this Egyptian guy who stabbed Rabbi Naginsky? Um, there was a double murder that took place in Winthrop not long ago when when two black residents of Winthrop were murdered. And I would say that the media in this town sort of flooded the zone to do deep, deep journalistic dives into the background of the attacker. We've seen a lot of this phenomenon of of news organizations doing deep dives into the background of various racist and and bigoted uh, people and organizations. But as you said in your introduction uh, earlier on, there hasn't really been a whole lot of digging and a whole lot of reporting on the kind of people who are responsible for things like the stabbing of Rabbi Naginsky. Um, I would have to say that the Globe hasn't had much coverage on this subject at all. And in fact, until the stabbing took place, there was nothing in the Globe about the spate of anti-Semitic violence that was taking place uh, around the country. And there's been there's been a lot of it, but mostly it's gotten covered when the violence has come from the right. The Pittsburgh uh, synagogue massacre was committed by somebody who apparently was a white supremacist. The Jersey City uh, kosher supermarket uh, massacre was committed by a couple of black supremacists, and that got far, far less coverage. And I'm sorry to say it, but I think that that just simple journalistic um, principles, when it comes to the subject of anti-Semitism, have gotten caught up in the culture war as well. 
And there's a much greater willingness on the part of so much of the media to focus on anti-Semitism when it comes from the right, in my estimation, than there is on anti-Semitism when it comes to the left. And we should be clear, anti-Semitism, the hatred of Jews, is not a left-wing phenomenon or a right-wing phenomenon. It's an every-wing phenomenon. You know, in in the course of uh, researching a column recently, I came across uh, an article that was describing the time when Elijah Muhammad the founder of Nation of Islam, the, the black radical, you know, black supremacist organization that um, uh, Louis Farrakhan is now the head of, that Malcolm X for a while belonged to and was ultimately killed by. Elijah Muhammad, the, 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 the black nationalist hater of Jews, visited and made common cause with George Lincoln Rockwell, the head of the American Nazi Party. He visited his uh, uh, his his gatherings, or maybe it was the other way around. Maybe George Lincoln Rockwell came to Elijah Muhammad's big big uh, uh, conventions. Far right and far left may disagree on everything, but one thing that they do agree on is that they both hate the Jews. Uh, so it's a terrible mistake to think that only when it's right-wing uh, haters who are responsible for attacking Jews or opening fire in a synagogue or stabbing rabbis uh, that you know doesn't deserve coverage. It deserves every bit as much coverage and focus and attention uh, when it's coming from the far left. And I'm just chagrined that we haven't seen you know, a greater balance and greater interest in that. Well, I think it, what's particularly interesting, um, it was actually, I learned it from one of your earlier columns that uh, you mentioned a statistic uh, collected by the FBI that uh, though the uh, Jews in America represent 2% of the population, uh, attacks against, uh, religious-based attacks against Jews represent 60% of violence. So the numbers are extraordinary. Um, what I would add and to it, that- And it's even more, I would say it's even more dramatic than that. It's true that among- the FBI categorizes hate crimes by, you know, by the reason for the hate, whether it's racial, whether it's religious, and so forth. I would say that a lot of attacks against Jews have nothing to do with their religion. Many, many Jews aren't religious at all. Many Jews are, are you know, atheists and perfectly secular. So that what you mentioned is a shocking statistic. Jews are two percent of the population, but sixty percent of the religion-based hate crime victims. But among all hate crimes in every category whether based on religion or based on race or based on ethnicity, uh, Jews are still by far the most likely to be victimized. So based on the most recent numbers, uh, Jews were two and a half times more likely than blacks and and more than, more than twice as likely as Muslims to be the victims of hate crimes. So it's not only within religious groups, but, but among any minority at all, uh, Jews are by far the ones who are the most targeted. And yet, you know, anybody who, who consumes media in this country, anybody who, you know, who reads the Boston Globe or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the LA Times and, and, or, or puts on CNN or MSNBC uh, would get the sense that hate crimes against Jews are at most a niche issue, whereas systemic racism in America and anti-Asian racism is you know, by far the, the, the most serious problem. And yet, based on the numbers, right. you can make a case that that's not true at all. Yeah, it's a, it's a surprise to me, uh, largely because one doesn't have to go too far out into the leafy suburbs to see lawn signs. Uh. Yeah, here I live in I live in Brookline, and all over the place <laughs> in this town, there are signs in front of people's houses that say "Black Lives Matter," and there are signs all over the places all over the place that say "Stop Asian Hate." Uh, I haven't seen a single sign anywhere decrying anti-Semitism. Um, I haven't seen any column in the Boston Globe that didn't have my byline on it that. Uh, that has decried or denounced anti-Semitism. 
uh, when a when a big full page statement was taken out um, in the Boston Globe, raising awareness about the the, the danger of Jew hatred, um, it had to be paid for by Jewish organizations. There really seems to be a much much lower level of concern by the public at large and by opinion opinion leaders at large and by uh, political you know public and political officials about what what anti-Semitism represents and what it can lead to. And as I said before, it, it's not just a problem for Jews. When anti-Semitism uh, gets hold, when it puts down roots in the community, that's a sign that the community itself is growing severely dysfunctional. Now, you mentioned uh, extreme leaders, uh, Louis Farrakhan on one side and uh, and the leader of the American Nazi Party uh, going to meetings together and sort of having common cause um, but in, let's say, less extreme levels the, on both the left and right, you said it's an every wing issue. Uh, let's let's take that apart a little bit. Where do you see, let's say, from a political realm? Let's start with the right. Um, uh, of course, we're, we're all aware of 2017 the, in Charlottesville, uh, the terrible uh, acts there that sort of uh, seem to be taking their cues from the Nazi propaganda uh, of, of the 30s. Uh, where else do you see um, anti-Semitism coming from, let's say, the right-wing quarters of our of Oh, society? a good example is to take the 2016 presidential campaign. I remember saying a number of times back then that if Donald Trump were elected, you know, I didn't vote for either Trump or for, who did he run against? In, or for Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Clinton. I've <laughs> tried to forget. <laughs> I didn't vote for either of them. I had serious problems with both those candidates. I voted for a third-party candidate. At the time, I said a number of times publicly that my belief was that if Donald Trump won, we would see a revival, a, a real a real eruption of anti-Semitism in this country. And I wasn't saying it because I believed Trump himself to be an overt hater of Jews, as you know, as everybody knows and, and, and his defenders often point out. His daughter converted to Orthodox Judaism, his grandchildren are Jewish. And and in terms of US Israel policy, I would say he was, you know, by a by by a wide margin, you know, one of the most pro-Israel presidents ever. Nevertheless, the kinds of people who rallied around Trump, the kinds of people who were animated and galvanized by him, very much included anti-Semites. There was a whole phenomenon on social media during the 2016 campaign uh, in which uh, anyone who criticized Trump could expect to be beset by overtly, explicitly anti-Semitic, uh, you know, social media trolls and haters. There was just an enormous eruption of it. I, you know, I got, you know, some of it, but um, some people, some some Jewish commentators who are really prominent, for example, I think Ben Shapiro, the Orthodox Jewish young political conservative, very conservative, and yet he was the, according to the ADL, he was the number one target of online anti-Semitic uh, attacks in 2016 because back then he opposed Trump. So you see a lot of it there. There used to be more casual anti-Semitism in Republican circles, the sort of genteel country club uh, Republican circles. That that has sort of faded away. You don't see too much of it anymore, but it certainly exists on the right. Uh, you know, the hard right on the you know the, the fanatic right. Um, you mentioned Charlottesville. Jews will not replace us, being one of the uh, you know the, the slogans that they were chanting. So, so it, it certainly exists on the far right, and and among the kinds of people that Trump excited and that Trump whipped up. Uh, my my analysis of it is that Trump played to the mob, that he had a kind of mob appeal, and that when mobs get excited, it's always bad for Jews. 
Uh, so you saw that. I mean, so that that's to answer your question about where do we see it on the right. Yeah, there have been a few examples of uh, members of Congress who have been elected who have said the most grotesque things. This woman from Georgia, what's her name? Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Marjorie yeah. Taylor Greene, or this Congressman Paul Gosar, you know, holding mm-hmm. a you know a, a fundraiser with one of the most um, overt, explicit Holocaust deniers. Uh, so you, you you certainly see some of it uh, on the right and on the far right. I'll say, uh, you know, regarding uh, former President Trump. Uh, he had many profound character flaws, but I actually didn't think uh, anti-Semitism was among them. But I will say he uh, one thing that stood out for me, he said at a benefit, actually, he was with Netanyahu, not Netanyahu at the time with uh, um, American Jews in the audience. And he said, uh, you know, I am going to stand up for your country, uh, kind of characterizing uh, Jews in America as having you know, sort of loyalty to Right. Israeli state, I think, I, I think you know, that's the oldest is, trope in the world. Like, that was more ignorance and boorishness than <laughs> overt hostility. But there, there were more examples. Uh, his, you know, his campaign had, uh, you know, I remember one one ad or one meme that the Trump campaign was sending around talking about the influence of foreign money and somehow all the faces mm-hmm. that appeared in the ad or almost all of them were Jewish. Trump talking to a Jewish audience in New York and saying something about, you know, you people are really good at cutting deals and making money. Uh, maybe it was his idea of how you flatter Jews, but what he was doing was simply reinforcing and underscoring some of the some of the classic tropes that have been used by you know anti-Semites, you know, through the decades. All right, let's anyone think this is a partisan show. We've taken out the right. Now let's talk about the left. Um, uh, voices are no less virulent. Um, but to my eyes, you know, we've covered this a bit. Uh, it seems more directed at Israel or or like the uh, BDS, the boycott, divest, and sanction movement. Um, what's your view of uh, where you're seeing uh, overt anti-Semitism in uh, political leadership of the left? So the, what you mentioned is certainly a, a big, big piece of it. Um, it. There have been numerous examples now of left-wing progressive organizations or events that that build themselves as explicitly anti-Zionist. Uh, the uh, the um, you know, the so-called Dyke March in, I think it was in Chicago a year ago, uh, where one of these uh, gay pride things, and, you know, the very left-wing radical Dyke March refused to allow radical, progressive, but Israel-supporting, uh, you know, LGBT organizations to take part. Um, I saw somewhere just recently one of these, um, uh, you know, one of these radical gay groups that their logo showed somebody holding two flags that were on fire. One was an American flag and one was the Israeli flag. The original Black Lives Matter manifesto, I think they have finally changed some of this um, you know, on their website, but the original capital BLM, Black Lives Matter Constitution or Charter or whatever they called it, described Israel as a genocidal regime. Uh, so there's a lot of this stuff on the far left as well. It does tend for the reasons that we talked about earlier, to take the form of uh, of, a, of attacks, often the most virulent uh, and, and uncompromising attacks on Israel, and of course we've had members of Congress, uh, you know, on the far left of the Democratic Party, who have shown themselves to be hostile to Israel and therefore hostile uh, to Jews. Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, you know, two of the most left wing members of the of the Democratic Caucus, two members of the, the so called Squad. Uh, talking about how the reason members of Congress support Israel is because, in, in Omar's you know infamous phrase, it's all about the Benjamins, baby. Jewish members of Congress are pro-Israel. You know, she was pretty much explicitly saying because they're paid to do so, or because they're getting money for doing so, or it's in their financial interest to do so. 
you know, the, the evidence mounts day by day and week by week on the left and on the right, uh, hatred of Jews, hatred of, of, of Jewish, you know, Jewish figures, of Jewish finance, of the Jewish state, you know, whatever it is that the particular uh, hater hates most, it gets a Jewish spin. And, and bit by bit, the, you know, the levels of anti-Semitism are rising. I want to, um, and now we've gone down some pretty dark holes here, I want to take it back to something a little more um, positive. I, I was encouraged by your article, How to Speak Out Against Anti-Semitism, that appeared recently in The Globe. Um, really, I think it was constructive in the way that you, of course, identify the many sources and, uh, and forms of anti-Semitism. But then you, you, you uh, said something about asking for allies, for, for people to, to uh, call anti-Semitism what it is, but also to uh, to prescribe, if you will, um, ways that we can combat this essentially ubiquitous, timeless scourge. What prompted that column was that after the stabbing of Rabbi Naginsky, and um, there was a, there was a, the Jewish, Jewish organization organized a rally in Brighton, and a number of public officials showed up. And I was listening to what they were saying and, and what other public officials were, you know, were tweeting and putting out on social media. And what I was struck by, what, what struck me was that their comments were all kind of platitudinous. They were all just boilerplate, there's no place for anti-Semitism in, in our community, those kinds of things. And I wrote the article to try both to explain some of the realities of what anti-Semitism involves that a lot of people just simply don't recognize or, or don't realize, and to call on public officials who really do want to be helpful in some way and who really do want to combat it, to speak more clearly and explicitly and bluntly about why this is a threat and why Jews are are uniquely vulnerable as targets of hate crimes. And while it's become, you know, an enormous cause in this country over the past, certainly over the past year, but, but you know, but, but for longer than that, to focus on, on racial bigotry or, or ethnic bigotry, when politicians uh, condemn uh, hatred of Jews, they feel the need to tack on a whole bunch of other kinds of bigotry. Um, you might remember that when Ilhan Omar made those, you know, those those obnoxious anti-Semitic comments in Congress, a number of members of the Democratic caucus introduced a resolution of censure, and it didn't pass until it was watered down by tacking on every other kind of bigotry that you can imagine. When Ayanna Pressley, the, mass, the Boston congresswoman, uh, finally issued a, you know, put out a tweet during all those attacks that were taking place, you know, a, a month or so ago. Uh, she didn't just put out a tweet saying anti-Semitism is terrible. It was, we must work against anti-Semitism and racism and anti-Asian bigotry and anti-LGBT bigotry. It's as though, it's as though for, for a lot of people and certainly a lot of public officials, if you, if you only focus on, on the hatred of Jews or only denounce anti-Semitism, you'll somehow yourself be seen as engaging in special pleading. So we're getting to the end of our show. Uh, our audience loves to become more informed with Hubwonk, but also to get some sort of action items. So um, our listeners who are both uh, lay people and perhaps political leaders or Jews and Gentiles alike, what would be the uh, call to action? What can um, our audience do if they perceive uh, acts of anti-Semitism or they want to be vigilant about it? What, you know, should they go to a rally? Should they write an op-ed? Where where can uh, we remain vigilant and and you know essentially work towards a more you know welcome pluralistic society, one that has you know successfully um, been a safe haven for Jews for three hundred years, right? We how can we ensure that we have another three hundred years ahead of us uh, where you're part of the the fabric of 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 America? 
So I'll, so I'll give you a couple of answers. But first, let me say, because I don't want this to be entirely dark and entirely uh, bleak, America remains the most, I would say, the most pro-Jewish country in the world. Despite everything that we've been talking about, there has never been a nation on earth that has been a, a safer haven for Jews and their long diaspora and their, their many years of wandering and, and, and being expelled from one country and another, like the United States. Uh, George Washington famously said uh, you know, to the Jewish community of Newport, Rhode Island, that, that America would be, uh, that this new government that he was the president of uh, would, would ensure that there would be no bigotry against Jews and that everyone, even, even a tiny minority, and Jews in, that, in those days were an even smaller minority in America than they are now, would be free to practice their religion without being you know, hindered or persecuted by the government. And by and large, you know, despite many stumbles and many problems over the years, uh, you know, despite many acts of anti-Semitism, by and large, that has been true. Jews have never had, uh, you know, never had the kind of uh, opportunity and, and, and freedom that they've experienced here. So, I mean, that needs to be said. And what should people do if they, you know, if they want to be, you know, to use the, the trendy term, if they want to be allies? One thing is, you know, go go read George Washington's famous letter to the Jews of Newport, just to give yourself a little historical perspective. Uh, educate yourself. You know, okay, here's a stereotype. I'm a Jew and Jews believe in education. So educate yourself on what anti-Semitism means. Read Barry Weiss's slim bestseller published just last year, How to Fight Anti-Semitism. Um, you know, easy read, a powerful read, very illuminating. Uh, read the book, you know, published many years ago by uh, uh, by Dennis Prager and Joseph Telushkin uh, called Why the Jews. It's been a bestseller for, for years. Again, you know, a slim book, well worth reading that explains a lot. Uh, you know, at the risk of tuning my own horn, you know, read, you know, read what I've written on this subject. I welcome anybody who's interested, you know, send me a note. I'd be happy to follow up with you. Um, where, where can our listeners find you uh, if they want to send a, uh, an email to you? Uh, and of course, I'm a, a subscriber to your newsletter. Uh, let us know how we can um, reach out or subscribe to your, uh, your weekly newsletter. So my, the newsletter is called Arguable. And, uh, and and I it's sponsored by the Boston Globe and I but it, it, content isn't entirely mine and I you know I write it uh, once a week um, you know, easy to subscribe for free you can find a subscription button uh, at the Globe website or um, uh, Bitly you know what is it Bitly.com/slash/arguable uh, is the, the short link that will take you to it or just send me a note Jacoby at Globe.com you know I'm I love hearing from readers and I'm happy to sign up anybody uh, you know who, who wants to get it as well. And, and, you know, and I would say just as, as a sort of final point, it, it's important just to, like to, to you know to, to emphasize or reinforce you know the point that we've been making all along. It's important, I think, for people to realize anti-Semitism is not primarily about. It's not just a problem for Jews. Jews can't cure it. Anti-Semitism isn't just another kind of bigotry. It's a kind of mental derangement. It's a sort of it's almost almost a sort of conspiracy theory type of mental illness. There's a reason why it has existed for 3,000 years and why it is continue, continuously you know, changing its shape. The more people understand about it, you know, the, the better they'll be positioned to, you know, to combat it and insist that, you're, that political officials and that your political leaders and that, and that the media that you get your information from not ignore, you know, not ignore the subject as well. You know, obviously, Joe, if there were an easy answer to the question, how can we end anti-Semitism, we wouldn't be talking about its existence for 3,000 years. Clearly, there's no there's no simple answer to it, uh, but I would say awareness and understanding and insight 
is within everybody's reach. And the more people understand, the better position they'll be to, to combat it. Wonderful. Uh, you mentioned Barry Weiss. Uh, she's going to be speaking at our Pioneer um, Gala on the 29th of September. I'm going to put a plug in for Pioneer's um, uh, dinner. Uh, folks who are interested in that can find us on pioneerinstitute.org. So, Jeff, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you very much for joining Hubwonk. I appreciate your time and um, uh, keep those wonderful Globe columns coming. Joe, it's always a pleasure. Next time we got to find some cheerful topic to spend a half hour talking about. Indeed. Thank you very much. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. As a bit of housekeeping, uh, I did mention in our conversation with Jeff Jacoby that there will be an annual dinner for Pioneer Institute supporters. That will be on September 29th. Uh, if you want to learn more about it, and, and we'll have a guest speaker, Barry Weiss, the former opinion editor for The New York Times, you can reach out to Sailor Scheller at Pioneer, and her email is sschelleer at pioneerinstitute.org. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like to support us, there are several ways to do that. Uh, it will be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your podcatcher. If you'd like to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, uh, you can offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. Of course, it's always welcome when you share us with friends. If you have ideas for me or suggestions or comments about future episode topics, you're welcome to reach out to me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. <music>